Genesis chapter 33. I'm going to read through the whole chapter and then we'll go back and walk through it a little bit. It says, Then Jacob lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two servant women. And he put the servant women and their children first, and Leah and her children after them, and Rachel and Joseph after them. But he, but he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? And he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servant women came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all these camps which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. And Jacob said, No, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my blessing, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have everything. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. And he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will lead on slowly according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Sair. Then Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, why do this? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sair. But, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Which he came, which when he came from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. Then he bought a portion of a field where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred quesitah. Then he set up there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which translated means God, the God of Israel. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Did we go through this whole section once before? No. No. Mark touched on it. Oh, okay. Maybe it was one of his things. In, in, in Genesis 32, but we didn't walk through it. And likewise, I'm going to touch on Genesis 32 a little bit to establish the context here. But anyway, in this chapter, we, we see the unexpected reconciliation of Jacob and his brother Esau, wherein Jacob first feared Esau was coming to slaughter him for the sin that he had committed against him some 20 years earlier, when Jacob deceived his father um, into thinking that Esau, that he was Esau, and so, he, so that he could steal the blessing that his father Isaac intended for Esau. But God, by his grace, created a radical change in Esau with regard to his hatred for Jacob. And Jacob, too, was experiencing a radical change was experiencing many radical godly changes in his life by God's grace. Radical godly changes in anyone's life happen when we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the non-elect, such as Esau, can, by God's grace, have their hearts changed to some degree through God's common grace. Now, for those that don't know, what, what's common grace? Well, that's what common grace is what prevents the world from going from totally depraved to utterly depraved, okay? God is holding things together and influencing the world enough that mankind does not become as evil as mankind can become. And from this godly influence 
on the world, all people benefit, even unbelievers. Things like love and, and forgiveness can still be expressed and experienced by unbelieving non-elect people in the world. People like Esau, who was a very worldly and godless man. In contrast to common grace, we who have been born again, who have encountered Christ, have been granted special grace. Special grace creates in us a savings faith in Christ that produces radical changes in our lives. A love of God, a love of his word, repentance of sin, love for others, humility. We who have encountered Christ have seen these things manifested in our lives in, in varying degrees. And while we still have plenty of room for growth in these areas, if we had never encountered Christ in our lives, we would be far worse off than we were even back then. Have you ever contemplated what your life would be like right now if you never encountered Christ? I know I have, and it's not pretty. The flaws that I still wrestle with now would have progressed to a much worse state over time if not for God's special grace in my life. Yes, God's common grace would have kept me from being as evil as I could be, but there would have been a, 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 a consistent and progressive walking away from God overall. And that's what we see happening in the world. But despite Esau being on that same path leading away from God, God still did a work in him to bless his chosen vessel, Jacob. Regarding Jacob, we are seeing, again, a, a gradual but radical change in him from what he was before he slept on that stone and saw angels ascending and descending on that ladder when God first spoke to him directly. And we will see evidence of this change in his life, in his heart, in this chapter as we go through it. And just remember, Jacob in the last chapter, in chapter 32, Mark taught on that last time, uh, where he encountered the man whom Jacob said was God and wrestled with him. Jacob was struggling with fear. Um, he, was got, he was not convinced that God was going to grant him all that he had promised him. So he literally and physically clung on to God, begging him to bless him. And God did, just as he had sovereignly decreed that he would do before the foundation of the universe. And we need to understand this properly. J Jacob clinging to God didn't change God's mind about blessing Jacob. But rather, the wrestling match that God instigated in chapter 32 was the means by which God caused Jacob to cling to him. And if we think about it, that describes our Christian walks. We still experience fear and anxiety in our lives in varying ways. Yes, we believe God is sovereign over all things and can do all things, but we are not always convinced that he will grant us what we are praying for, that we are asking for. So we cling to him in prayer and beg him to bless us in specific ways, sometimes out of fear of our circumstances. Not always realizing that God may have better things in mind for us than what we ask for. So we sometimes wrestle with God spiritually, struggling to understand why certain things happen to us or don't happen to us. Much like how Jacob must have been wondering God, why have you allowed Esau to have 400 men coming my way to possibly destroy me? But when Jacob was blessed by this man, this God man that he was wrestling with, after the guy broke his hip, God broke his hip, a peace came over Jacob, a peace that helped him to face his greatest fear. Again, Jacob encountered Jesus Christ in chapter 32. This man he wrestled with was the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, Jesus Christ, what is called a Christophany. Now, some of you may ask, how do we know that this was Jesus that Jacob encountered and wrestled with in Peniel? Genesis 32.4 says Jacob wrestled with a man. But the, the text goes on to reveal that this was more than just a man. He identified himself in verse 28 as God. Elohim in Hebrew. Now, someone may ask, how do we know this wasn't just an angel? Because sometimes that word Elohim is used as a generic term for heavenly beings and can be referring to angels. Psalm 8 verse 5 says this, Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. 
and you crown him with glory and majesty. The word translated angels there is Elohim. It's a generic term for heavenly beings. So again, how do we know this wasn't just an angel that Jacob wrestled with in chapter 32? Well, first of all, Jacob found it so significant that he had seen the face of his opponent and lived. Seeing an angel face to face was never something that people in scripture were afraid that they would die from. No, but no one sees God and lives as God the Father said to Moses in Exodus 33:20. God said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. So then how did Jacob see God and live in Genesis 32? Well, because this was not God the Father, but rather it was the pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, whom we know as Jesus Christ. Also, Jacob named this place Peniel, or that means the face of God, because he claimed to have seen the face of God, literally. Again, we know it could not have been God the Father, because as Scripture also says in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The only begotten God is speaking of Christ. So God has only been seen in the incarnate Christ. And in these Old Testament accounts, when Christ appeared as a man or the, the angel of the Lord, there are actually several accounts of these Christophanies that happened in the Old Testament. One of these accounts is in Genesis 18.1, when Abraham encountered a Christophany. Genesis 18.1, it says, Then Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. It was from this encounter um, and the encounter that Abraham had with Christ in Genesis 22 that Jesus was actually referring to in the New Testament. In John 8, 56, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And these accounts remind us of the pre, of Christ's pre-incarnate, his pre-existence before his virgin birth. They remind us that Christ is the eternal God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, and not just a created being like an angel, not an exalted being as Jehovah Witnesses teach, not merely an angel or the brother of Lucifer as Mormons teach, not merely a prophet as Muslims teach, or not merely just a good teacher as the secular world teaches, but he is God incarnate. And we look at the Bible, and it is all one message, and we see this before his incarnation. He is appearing to people. Turn to Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15. Speaking of Christ, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Again, the, the term firstborn of all creation is not saying that Jesus was the first to ever have been born of women. It's mean, it means that he is of preeminence over all people. Like the firstborn male child has preeminence over the family in the father's absence. But notice also, it says Christ is the image of the invisible God. We need to recognize this vital distinction because yes, we are made in the image of God. We are not the image of God. Christ is the image of God. As the Nicene Creed says, Jesus was begotten, not made. That speaks of how the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh to be born of a virgin. But he existed before his birth. We as persons did not exist before our birth. We are finite beings. Christ is infinite. Now, Jehovah Witnesses will argue and say, well, you know, your children, they are the image of yourselves. So in the same way, Jesus was made in the image of his father, but he's not Jehovah. You see, Jehovah Witnesses reject the divinity of Christ. 
They claim that Jacob wrestled with not with God, but with the archangel Michael. They claim Michael was the first created being and became Jesus Christ in the incarnation. But they believe that Jesus was created and then exalted after being created and not the eternal second person of the Trinity, not God. This is Arianism going all the way back to the second, third century. But they need to consider the very next verse in Colossians 1. In verse 16, it says, For in him, speaking of Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Now some may say, so what? Scripture says God dwells in us too. But the only reason God dwells in us is because he was pleased with Jesus Christ. And we are in Christ. And in Christ, all things were created. And in Christ, all things are redeemed. But Colossians 1 also says that Jesus Christ created all things. And it's amazing to see how Jehovah Witnesses, modern-day Arians, have purposely added to this text to make it fit with their heretical beliefs. As in every instance in this passage where it says all things, they have made it say all other things. And they, they do this in their version of the Bible called the New World Translation of the Bible. A translation created in the 1950s. But in none of the 6,000 ancient Greek manuscripts that we translate from does it ever read all other things. And you may be thinking, so what? What's the difference? Well, Jehovah Witnesses teach, again, that Jesus is not equal with God, but created. Therefore, Jesus could not have created all things that have been created, or else he would have had to have created himself, because they believe he is created. And of course, it's logically impossible for something to create itself. <laughs> so they try to get around this by adding a word to scripture. They add the word other, so that Jesus created all other things. Therefore, they hold to their Arianism by saying Jehovah created Jesus while Jesus created all other things. And this is just one example of the heresy of their brand of Arianism that rejects the Trinity, the divinity of Christ and God's word. And this is spreading even beyond Jehovah Witnesses, this kind of false teaching. A heresy that was soundly and scripturally refuted at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, where early church fathers such as uh, Alexander of Alexandria, Athanasius, and a guy named St. Nicholas, who you might have heard of, defended the biblical case of the Trinity against the growing heresy of Arianism. A case that was established in the first century with the apostles' testimony of Christ, a case that had its foundations in the Old Testament as we are seeing here in Genesis. Those who reject the divinity of Christ are preaching another Christ, a false Christ that cannot save. And they are lost. They are not saved. They do not know the true Jesus Christ, nor do they know God, who is Trinitarian in his essence. But it's not just them. It's every major religion outside of Orthodox biblical Christianity. They try to exalt Jesus as just a created being, and they reject his divinity. Muslims Mormons, Hindus, Buddhists, all have nice things to say about Jesus, but they all deny his trinity, his divinity. They ignore the fact that Jesus himself calls himself by God's name, as we read earlier, I am, before Abraham was, I am. They also ignore the fact that the sinless Jesus received worship from his disciples. It's right in the text in Matthew 28, 9. It says, and they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They deny the fact that Jesus said that he shared in God the Father's glory before his incarnation. John 17, 5, when Jesus was praying to God, he said, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And yet the Bible also tells us that God 
shares his glory with nobody. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. That means Jesus must be Yahweh if he shared in God's glory. And people always ask, will always ask, if Jesus is God, then why is he why is he talking to God in John 17? Is he talking to himself? And again, this is God the Son talking to God the Father in heaven. And that does not negate the fact that Jesus is God. But rather, this passage refutes the heretical doctrine of modalism that says that God can just change modes from Father to Son to Spirit. I had a discussion the other day with a guy who bragged to me about his seminary degree, and yet he rejects the Trinity. Big surprise. He holds to modalism, which reveals the slippery slope that he is on. Because our, our debate started with him saying that our nation is divided because of a lack of epistemological humility. Basically, he was saying that we can't claim to have full knowledge of issues that divide us. So we can't assert absolutes. He's basically saying things aren't black and white. Everything's gray. And in his opinion, the Bible doesn't explicitly address things like abortion, LBGTQism, CRT, socialism, things like that. And I pointed out how the Bible actually does address those things in the principles that extend from his moral law. And his only response to that was, well, the Bible says a lot of things. Oh, wow. <laughs> Meaning, because this is a seminary graduate. Because he says, because people interpret the Bible in many ways, we can't use it as a guide for objective truth. And this approach he chooses to take towards Scripture is why he claims the Trinity is not taught in Scripture. And this is why his worldview crumbles. Whoops. His worldview crumbles and was why he had to resort to calling me mean and ending the conversation. Because I would not let him get away with his false assertions, and he could not defend his view from Scripture. Anyway, we also need to understand that we believe in one God, not three gods. This guy that I was talking to told me, you're basically saying you believe in three gods. People who, who claim we believe in three gods are misrepresenting what we believe. They are building a straw man argument. For God is one God in being, but he exists as three persons. We should know that. We are human beings. Each of us are a human being, and we are also a person. But each of us, as human beings, are limited to being a person. There are human beings, and each of us are a person. We're all human beings, but each of us are persons. Each of us are limited to being one person within our being. Scripture tells us that God has the ability to be one in being, God is one, and yet exist as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect union. And God has always been one in being and three in persons, even before time began. God never had a beginning and will never have an end. He is infinite. And this blows our minds because we are finite and everything we encounter apart from God is finite. But our passage today testifies of the eternal Son of God as he supernaturally appeared to Jacob in physical form as a man, not as a single angel, as Jehovah Witnesses assert. Jacob identified angels at the beginning of chapter 32, but this person he wrestled with, he called God. And the text says that Jacob strove with Elohim and saw Elohim face to face in a singular sense even though Elohim is a plural word. If this was referring to angels, it would be referring to multiple angels that he would have been wrestling with. But because there is a singular man here that it's referring to, this must be interpreted as the generic name used for the triune God. The same name used in Genesis 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Scripture is clear that God created the heavens and the earth, and Scripture says Jesus and the Holy Spirit also created all things. Scripture never says angels created anything, but Scripture lists angels alongside all created things. But the identity of this God-man that Jacob wrestled with is also confirmed in Hosea. 
And this is important. I just want to go back through this and reestablish this. Hosea 12, verses 3 through 5 says, In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, speaking of Jacob. And in his maturity, he wrestled with God. That's the word Elohim. Indeed, he wrestled with the angel. That's the word Malach. And prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him in Bethel. And there he spoke with us. Even Yahweh, the God of hosts. Yahweh is his name of remembrance. So, did Jacob wrestle with an angel? as verse 4 says, or with God. Well, Hosea identified this angel as being Yahweh in verse 5. This was the angel of the Lord, which is the same name given to the one who appeared to Abraham in Genesis 22. Genesis 22:15 says, Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not spared your son, your only, your only one, indeed, I will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have listened to my voice. So this is an angel talking to Jacob. This is the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And you may be wondering, well, why did Moses then use all these different names to refer to God? I mean, he calls him Yahweh. He calls him Elohim. He calls him the angel of the Lord. In another place, he calls him Adonai. Why doesn't he just use one name so he can make it easy? <laughs> well, each name, that's one of the beauties of Scripture. Each name reveals something specific about God and his attributes. Yahweh, I am, speaks to the eternal, self-sustaining nature of God. Elohim reveals to a plurality of persons within a singularity of being that rules over the universe. <clears throat> the angel of the Lord reveals God's ability to manifest himself in a physical way before us. Adonai speaks of our relationship to him in that he is our Lord. Anyway, I wanted to spend some time on this because it is such an important issue that I continue to see degrading in the church and in society. Many in the visible church misunderstand and misrepresent these things. Many have also said this kind of thing is just not important. It's only for seminary students, which clearly it's not. I just talked to one the other day. <laughs> no, this is the revelation of God given to us in his word, and there is nothing more important. And, this is the, and the foundations of this doctrine are in the account that we are looking at with regard to Jacob's encounter with Jesus. And only such an encounter could provide Jacob with such a peace in the face of his greatest fear. As chapter 33 begins with him, Jacob, seeing his worst nightmare come true. Esau, his brother, was coming for him to kill him in his mind. Yet Jacob... In light of this, calmly divided his camps into two for their safety and went on ahead of them to meet his brother. Jacob was engaging in, in a self-sacrificial love for others instead of self-preservation. By going ahead of the camps to meet Esau, he was basically putting himself out there. If I'm going to die, at least they'll survive. I mean, compare that with Abraham and Isaac, who were willing to give away their wives to persevere in their own, or to preserve their own lives. This is, this is true evidence of Jacob's genuine conversion happening. Also, it seems that the old Jacob would have tried to hide and run or, to, or weasel his way out of this. But Jacob approached Esau in all humility, bowing before him seven times. Jacob seemed to have a genuine sorrow for the sin that he had committed against his brother and, and, and what that sin brought about. Jacob seemed to feel guilt for his sin and seemed genuinely repentant, wanting to be reconciled to his brother. Now, some may assert that this desire that Jacob had to be reconciled to Esau was purely motivated by self-preservation. But when they embraced, this is important, when they embraced, the text says they both wept, showing a genuine brotherly love 
for each other. This wasn't fake. They really were joyous to be reconciled. Not only that, but not once did they bring up the past in this account. Esau didn't say anything about what Jacob had done, nor did Jacob try to justify his sin by pointing out that Esau sold him his blessing for the red lentil soup, so you have nothing to complain about. No, it was as if their sins had been totally forgotten, which should remind us again of the gospel that says there is no condemnation in Christ. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And this brings us to the powerful application of this chapter. Actually, a couple applications that can be described as redemption and reconciliation. First, let's see the application of redemption in this chapter. Jacob expected and deserved the wrath of his brother but he received grace and mercy. He received love from Esau. He was redeemed from Esau's brand of justice to being loved by Esau, a totally unexpected occurrence. He expected Esau, again, to come with his 400 men and try to slaughter him and his entire family. Instead, Esau embraced him. Something had fully atoned for Jacob's sin in Esau's mind. Was it the gifts that, Jesus, that uh, Jacob had given him? Remember, he gave him all those animals? But there was not just an economic atonement here, but an emotional one, as Esau was genuinely happy to see his brother. It seems that Esau had grown tired of hating his brother, especially after he had prospered so well himself. Remember, Esau said, I have plenty. <laughs> yes, Esau at first, politely rejected all the stuff that Jacob wanted to give him in Jacob's attempt to appease his brother's wrath. But we need to understand that it was customary in the Middle East to at first reject gifts that are offered and then equally customary for the giver to insist that the gifts be accepted, which is what Jacob did, and Esau then accepted it. And these gifts that Jacob gave his brother were abundant. He gave Esau over 550 valuable animals. Some scholars claim that this generous gift may have at least temporarily appeased Esau's wrath. They say, they say this because G Jacob stole the blessing from Esau, if you remember 20 years earlier. But in this account, Jacob attempts to restore the blessing to Esau. Genesis 33:11 in our text says, please take my blessing, Jacob talking here, says, please take my blessing, which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have everything. The Hebrew word here for blessing is barakah. And this is the same Hebrew word for the blessing that Isaac gave Jacob when Jacob pretended to be Esau 20 years earlier. So fast forward to 20 years later, it seems that Jacob is trying to return that blessing that he had stolen from his brother. And Esau honored this atonement that Jacob was providing. But as I said, it wasn't just a financial debt forgiveness because Esau could have just easily killed Jacob and take up, taken all his stuff anyway. But Esau didn't do that. He showed mercy, which means there was an emotional debt forgiven as well. Jacob's offering and humble approach may have been what God used to quench Esau's hate. And if we think about it, this serves as an illustration of the redemption that we have in Christ. For though we deserve God's wrath and eternal condemnation, God's wrath was appeased by the giving of his son as an eternal sacrifice that atoned for our sin. You see, original sin entered the world when the first Adam stole the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In that original sin, we are all born condemned with a sin nature. And that original sin debt was paid and can only be paid when the second Adam came and was placed back upon a tree. As a result, we come bowing humbly before our crucified Savior, seeking the forgiveness of our sin debt. And because, because of this, God embraces us and gives us his undeserved favor, abundant mercy, and perfect love. 
He comes to us embraces and embraces us as we stand before him guilty and at his mercy. Jacob gave Esau what God had given him. Things that would have been of great value to Esau. Over 550 animals. A value comparable to the value of the blessing that Esau would have received from Isaac if Jacob hadn't stolen it. <laughs> but the only thing comparable of comparable value value that any of us can offer to God to appease his wrath and pay for our sin debt is Jesus Christ, who was given to us by God. We can offer no possession or work of our own that will atone for our eternal debt. Only in God's gift of Jesus to us, his blessing to us. Only in the crucifixion and death of Jesus is our sin against the eternal God imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. And in that transaction, our lives become not our own, but we become bondservants of Christ, being in him. Just as Jacob twice called him the servant of Esau and called Esau his Lord five times, Likewise, Jesus is our Lord, our Adonai, and we are his servants. Now, this if we think about this, this might be confusing because wasn't there a prophecy given that said that Esau would be the servant of Jacob? Man, yes, there was. Back in chapter 25, it says, And Yahweh said to her, speaking of Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's speaking of Esau and Jacob. Esau being the older, Jacob the younger. So that's saying that Esau would serve Jacob, or the peoples would, his peoples. Um, see, that's how it's fulfilled. This, the fulfillment of this prophecy is in the nations that would descend from Esau and Jacob. The nation of Edom would descend from Esau, as the nation of Israel would descend from Jacob. So though Jacob and Esau would reconcile, their future nations would often be enemies, as Israel would rule over Edom throughout most of biblical history, fulfilling the prophecy. Anyway, this transaction wherein we are imputed with Christ's righteousness and we become his bondservants happens by God's grace through the gift of faith. And through that gift of faith, we come unto the cross wherein we offer up our King, our Lord and Savior, as the atoning sacrifice for all our sin to appease God's wrath. And Jacob even gives us an illustration of this implicitly, of God's mercy toward us, um, when he said this in verse 10. Genesis 33, 10, it says, For I see your face, as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. What did Jacob mean here? Well, I highly doubt that he saw Esau as being literally God incarnate or someone to worship as one would worship God. No, Jacob saw God working in and through Esau to extend his divine love and divine grace through him to Jacob. Esau is an illustration of God's wrath converting to God's grace. Jacob recognized the grace of God toward him in Esau's embrace. And in the same way, we should see every day, every, as every blessing and every breath we have, the way that Jacob saw Esau, as the grace of God being poured out upon us because we so deserve his wrath. And in that, we can sincerely sing that Psalm 23, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because, you know, the world programs us to want more all the time. But if the Lord is our shepherd, those wants start to fall away because he is our ultimate want. The world, of course, doesn't see things that way, however. The worldly individual justifies his or her sin, and that person will say, no sin justifies eternal torment in hell. But those who make such statements have a low view of God's holiness. They have a low view of God and how much he hates sin. And this is why 
the unbeliever will live their lives perpetually wanting more, never being fulfilled. Now, unbelievers and even us tend to wink at our sin. We even tend to sometimes laugh at our sin. But the sin we laugh at drove the nails into Christ. The sins we wink at brought about the brutal scourging of Je that Jesus endured. The sins we say don't, that people say don't deserve eternal torment are sins committed against an eternal and holy God that in turn require an eternal and complete judgment. See, we are so small. We have no real understanding of how holy God is or how destructive our sin and rebellion against him is. But our sin brought about all suffering, all death in this universe. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's how destructive sin is. And why our eternal torment is required for those who die in the, their sin. And eternal torment. But there's another application here with regard to Jacob and Esau's reconciliation. Um, how many here have heard of the? How many here have heard of the man named Fritz Erbe? Fritz Erbe, he was a Protestant reformer. He was he was a 16th century German, German Anabaptist who refused to baptize his children because he did not see pedo baptism as being biblical. Protestant reformer leaders imprisoned him in a cold, dark dungeon alone for 15 years in Wartburg Castle until he died in 1548. Protestant Reformation leader Philip Melanchthon publicly called for the execution of all Anabaptists. They were Paedo-Baptists. Martin Luther likely had full knowledge of Fritz Erbe being in prison and could have called for this man's release, but he said nothing. And we all like to praise the Protestant reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Melanchthon and John Calvin, but all of them would have had no objection to each of us being either cast out of their cities or imprisoned or even executed for certain doctrines that we hold to that they disagree with. Yet Fritz Erbe, Martin Luther, and Philip Melanchthon may very well be standing side by side in heaven right now worshiping our Lord. Enemies in the world are living out their eternity as brothers in Christ. And that is such a glorious thought and a lesson for us as we think about this reconciliation of brothers. There are many in the church with whom we may have major disagreements about certain things. And it is a good thing to strive to hold to our convictions with regard to what God's word says. We must never compromise on that. But we must remember to keep the main thing the main thing with brothers and sisters in Christ that we disagree with concerning secondary issues. We should not make the mistake the Reformation leaders made concerning these things and attempt to kick them out of the kingdom and condemn them. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. If we hold to the core doctrines of Christianity, those core doctrines being who Christ is, he is God incarnate. He is the second person of the triune God. And that we are 100% saved by God's grace alone through the gift of faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Don't get me wrong. Secondary issues can be very important. And on some secondary doctrines that are unbiblical, yet embraced by a church, we should break from fellowship with those that uphold those unbiblical things. Because some secondary points can be slippery slopes that result in compromise of primary doctrines. But we must leave room for grace. We must leave room for reconciliation in our relationships with those people. When I became a Calvinist, my pastor said I could no longer be an elder in his church. I was close to being kicked out of his church while he left. I left the church and the breakup was bitter. Since then, I have reconciled with him, even though I don't agree with him and I won't sit under his teaching, but I still consider him a brother in the Lord. So we need to check our hearts with how we feel towards those who we disagree with. 
and ask God to help us to make to have that discernment and to show them grace. Even if we can't be in a church fellowship with them and be doctrinally unified with them. Which leads us to the close of this chapter. Esau invited Jacob and his family to come with them to Sire. But Jacob said no. His animals and people needed to rest. Jacob even refused Esau when Esau offered to leave some of his people with him. Jacob said, go on ahead and we will meet you in Sire. However, Jacob lied. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that. Instead, Jacob led his people to Sukkoth, where he built a house. And then he went to Shechem, which was in Canaan. He avoided having any further fellowship with Esau. But why? Well, Esau was not a man of God, and Jacob recognized that. He was, as Romans 9 tells us, a vessel of God's wrath. Now, I'm speculating, but I don't think Jacob fully trusted his brother. I'm sure his reconciliation was genuine, but how long before that may have changed? So Jacob wisely avoided allowing his people to be in that situation. However, Jacob lied in doing that. So that raises the question, should Jacob have just told Esau that he planned to go back to Canaan and didn't want to go with him to save? Maybe, or maybe that might have triggered Esau. Who knows? <laughs> but I think Jacob was lying to protect his people. So are there occasions where lying is acceptable in God's eyes? There are at least two other instances in the Bible where lying produced favorable results. For example, the Hebrew midwives, when they lied to Pharaoh to, to save babies, this resulted in God blessing them, and it saved many Hebrew lives. Also, another example is Rahab's lie to protect the Israelite spies in Joshua 2.5. She is listed as a hero of faith in Hebrews 11, but for her faith in welcoming the Hebrew spies, doesn't say anything about her lying. So it is important to note that God never condones lying. It's a sin. But despite the positive outcome of these lies, the Bible nowhere praises the lie themselves. Um, the Bible nowhere states that there are instances where lying is the right thing to do, though sometimes it may seem necessary. The most common contemporary illustration of this dilemma comes from the life of Corey Tenboom in Nazi-occupied Holland. Essentially, the story is that Corrie Ten Boom was hiding Jews in her home to protect them from the Nazis. Nazi soldiers came knocking on her door and asked if she knew where the Jews were hiding. What should she do? Should she have told the truth and allowed the Nazis to capture the Jews that she was trying to protect? Or should she lie and deny that she knows anything about them? And that's what she did. In an instance such as this, where lying may be the only possible way to prevent a horrible evil, perhaps lying would be an acceptable thing to do. Such an instance would be somewhat similar to the lies of the Hebrew midwives and Rahab. In an evil world and in a desperate situation, it may be the right thing to commit a lesser evil in order to prevent a much greater evil, especially in the context of war, where deception is a necessary tactic. However, it must be noted that such instances are extremely rare. And again, it's better to err on the side of not sinning against God. Um, but anyway, Jacob, I, hope, I know I kind of left that ambiguous, but it's something for us to think about and pray about. Anyway, Jacob clearly wanted to avoid Esau so as not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And this again shows the evidence of the faith that God was building up in Jacob. At the same time, in Genesis 36, God's word tells us that the reason Esau was initially going to Sire was because he knew he would, there would not be enough room for him and Jacob in Canaan when Jacob returned. So it seems that Esau also wanted to be separated from his brother, even though he invited him to Sire with him. Maybe he was caught up in the moment and made this an offer that he would have later regretted. We don't know. But the next time Jacob and Esau would see each other would be when they would bury their father Isaac. Anyway, Jacob goes on to settle in Shechem and set up an altar to God there. His altar, El Elohe Israel, which means the God, the God of Israel, 
is a testimony to his loyalty and service to the one true God. Um, it's also no coincidence that this altar was erected where Abraham built his first altar in the promised land, in Genesis 12. But I'm going to end here. We're almost out of time. But take note of how in this Old Testament account, we have seen Christ, we've seen the Trinity, the gospel, we've even seen the church illustrated. Because this is all the revelation of God to us, to bring him glory and to strengthen our faith, to show his sovereignty over all things, even in, in the, the communication of his word, the revelation of his message to us that reveals Christ from Genesis to Revelation. So let's end there. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord God. We thank you, Father God, for this revelation that you have given each of us in this time that we live in, that we can open your, your word, your scriptures, and see all that you have done throughout history, Lord God, in revealing Christ to the world, Lord. You came as the angel of the Lord, the angel that would wipe out thousands of Assyrians in a single night that were coming against your people. And this same, the angel of the Lord that would appear in a manger 2,000 years ago and then be crucified on a cross 30 years after that. Father, we thank you for this glorious revelation and then the truth of your resurrection and the hope that it instills in each of us, Lord God, that we can call you our shepherd and not want because you are our greatest want. And that, that should be our, our daily prayer, Lord God, that you are our greatest want over all things, that all these things of the world that latch on to us would fall away and that we would sense that true freedom in you. So, Father, thank you, Lord God, for this picture, this, this account of redemption and reconciliation, Father. And pray, Lord, that your spirit would minister your word in our hearts to continue to change us, to continue to sanctify us and grow us in the image of Christ, Lord, just as you were growing Jacob back then. Multiply that, Lord, for each of us. We thank you and praise you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.